Thank you for listening to our church podcast where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. Most of the sermons will be preached by our founding pastor, John Cole. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m. for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. All right, I'm looking forward to the message today in Philippians 2. I believe that the Lord has been so good to lead me to Philippians and allow us to go through this. What a fitting text that we're going to get into. Before we get into the text and the sermon for today, I want us to just simply take a moment to review back where we have been since we've been in Philippians. We began in chapter 1 in the first two verses. If you remember, I was trying to lay some foundation for what was uh, coming upon us as a church. And so I spent, I preached like an hour and a half, or an hour and five minutes on two verses. And we talked about the, uh, the structure of the church as we looked at Paul writing to the pastors, the deacons, and the saints of the church. And so that was verses 1 and 2. We saw them, Paul writing as a servant of Christ to the Philippian believers who he had met, I believe, about 10 years prior to this. And he was a prisoner. And he was writing to these believers that he had a beautiful, uh, endearing, joyful relationship in partnering in the gospel. And then we went on from there and we looked throughout the whole chapter, chapter 1. And we saw in chapter 1, Paul writing about their partnership in the gospel and how the whole reason why we even come together and we join together uh, while we have different preferences, different backgrounds, different likes, different interests, while we have all of that, we come together in partnership of the gospel of Christ. And that is our commonality. And they partner together there. And then he went on and talked about the partnership and then he went on to talk about the furtherance of the gospel and how God changed up things in Paul's life. And it brought him even to the point of being in prison. And he looked at it and said, though I would not have chosen this, God has done this to further the gospel. And he explained how that began to happen. And at the end of chapter 1, we saw Paul writing to them about the faith of the gospel and telling them to continue in that faith, to strive together in that faith, to be faithful as one body and to live worthy of the gospel. When we went into chapter 2, Paul began to lift up the centerpiece of the whole book and the centerpiece of our whole gospel, the centerpiece of why we meet and why we gather, why we have the Lord's Supper, why we have a baptism, why we pray, why we believe that we are redeemed and saved and called of God, and it was Christ. And he gave the hymn of Christ. And he lifted up the example of Jesus Christ and how Jesus Christ is the perfect example of obedience and humility for the purpose of God's plan. And then on either side of that, of chapter 2, last week we looked at the beginning, and that was humility. As Jesus was lifted up and exalted as the humble, obedient servant, the beginning of the chapter began admonishing the Philippian believers to say, now you be humble like Christ. You be humble like Christ. And last Sunday I preached a message about Christ-like humility and how important it is that God's people are humble. If God's plan will be fulfilled that God wants to do through you and me in our lives and and for this church, it will call for people to do the same that Christ did. And that is to humble themselves for the purpose God has. For Christ, the humbling was for the purpose of the death of the cross. 
But each of us have our own crosses to bear, our own purposes, and we humble ourselves. And we went through the message, and if you missed it Sunday, I'd encourage you to listen to the message online because it will help you even through this time to think about the importance of thinking less of self and more of others, the importance of looking out and to use as you've been fed and as you've gotten God's word in you and you've grown to make sure that you don't become a dead sea where it just you get a whole lot of good, but you get stuffed with and it, nothing comes out and you don't invest in other people, but you look outside of it and the Bible teaches here, as we looked at last week, to look at other people's interests as better than your own. What an amazing, convicting thought to give. To look at other people's interests better than your own. And Christ would not have went to the cross if he didn't look at each of you and me and look at us and say that for this, I will go to the cross for sake of you. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And I challenged us last week to take some time to look around and look at the church Make sure, again, I will say again, that this is not just an event, a place, a sermon. The church is not a sermon. The church is not a place. The church is not a time. The church is not a program. The church is not a building. Church is a group of people called out from the world following Christ. Practicing the ordinances that he has given us, looking forward to Christ's return. That's the church. And the church is a body and that body needs to know each other. The hand needs to know the foot, and the foot uh, needs to know the fingers, and they need to know one another, the eye, and they need to know one another. And so I challenge us to look around. I asked if, if you were asked, could you share what someone else's interest is in this church? And I said, give me two interests you know someone else in this church has. And I just picked a person and said, what's two things you think they're interested about? Could you say two things? And my admonishment was for you, how, how can you and I care about the interests, the things, have interest about the things of others more than our own if we don't even know the things people are interested in? And if we're not careful, what we could do is we can judge and be like, yeah, but you know, their interests are important because I see them in their life. A lot of times we don't know each other well enough. So you think, oh, they, they're, not that, they're not that faithful to Christ, and so I don't even need to learn their things. What if God in heaven said, you know, they're too different, they're too distant, they're too sinful, they're too uh, depraved. I'm not going to invest in, their, in what, what needs to happen for them. I'm not going to transform them by the power of the gospel. What if God had done that? Christ is our example to follow. And so he tells us to look around and care about the interests of those in this room and those that are not even with us today. So the challenge of last Sunday was for us to look around. I'm going to encourage you. Not right now. I said last week it's awkward. So don't look around. Start looking at people now. But I would literally consider you to uh, encourage you to write people's names down. Get a mental picture in their, the head, in your head of each of them, and even work as a church to get a church directory where you got it online or you got it in print. You could pay, but a picture just a, a profile picture and get people's faces in your mind and to think, what's, what's two or three things that they care about? What do they need spiritually? What do they need relationally? What do they need financially, physically? What are some of their cares? What are some of their hobbies, their vocations? Know each other. I can't care about the things of others more than my own if I don't even know what their things are. And so the encouragement last week was to humble ourselves and to care about the interests of others more than our own.
Today is on the other side of Christ being exalted and lifted up, being this one that humbled himself, but also he humbled himself and became obedient. So I'm going to preach a message about Christ-like obedience today. There was a husband and wife that were discussing the possibility of taking a trip to the Holy Land. And the husband said, wouldn't it be fantastic to go to the Holy Land, stand and shout the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai? Wouldn't that be amazing? And his wife just looked over at him and said, I think it'd be more amazing for you to stay right here and obey them. (laughs) Ouch. The unfortunate reality is that far too often that's me and that is you. We want the spectacular. We want the experience of religion. We even want the experience of preaching. We want the experience of going through the motions of the four. But we often, too often, lack the faithful day-in, day-out practice of obedience to those things we amen, those things we experience. Too many times people want the form of religion but deny the power thereof. I want to go through the motions of it and enjoy it, but the power of it is the power to change you. The power of the gospel is the power to change your master from sin to Christ, who is a loving, wonderful Savior. He's not only your master, but he's your friend. He's not only master, but he's your Lord. He's not only your Lord, but he is your brother. He calls us in to know him closely, and he gently leads us, and he invites us to his yoke and put his yoke upon us and learn of him. Christ is amazing for you and I to experience the power of him in our life, not just the form of religion. Too many people go to church just to say, oh, we sang those songs and we praised and worshiped and all oh, the, the pastor preached and boy, it was a, it was, we had a time. Okay, so w- what are you going to do based off of what you heard today? How is the Lord, the Holy Spirit working in your heart to, to be different? Of course, we need to have the experience of worship together as a corporate body, remembering each other. It's not only about what are you going to do, but that definitely needs to be there. So too often we can lack that. We can care more about the form of it. I was just talking with a neighbor. I had all these people like this last week. I just announced that we were leaving. So like this last week, everybody's trying to get us together with them. And literally till, I mean, I finished late last night and finished early this morning working on things. And we had neighbors coming over and wanting us to get together with them. And we had one neighbor I was talking to and I got to talk about the gospel with him. He was one I hadn't yet. And so I got to share the gospel with him. And and as I was doing that, I was grieved a bit. I wish I had spent more time and had him over to my house and be able to talk more because I could tell that to him, when you talk about God and a relationship with God, it got narrowed down to religion. You know, more of, well, you know, I'm, I'm good with someone being Baptist, Catholic, Greek, Orthodox. What matters is that we all respect each other. And I said, absolutely, you're right about that. We need to respect each other. But what also matters is that we know Christ, that we know God. And it's sad when the relationship with God gets narrowed down to what religion are you? And it is true that there are wrong religions. Churches have doctrine. If a church doesn't have a doctrine, I don't know how you call it a church, right? And so churches have doctrine. So there's good doctrine and bad doctrine. So if I say I believe something, that means I have to not believe some things. So I can't say, well, I believe this, but they're all right too. Well, if they're not preaching the Bible, then I respect and love them. 
and care about them and don't fight with people that believe differently. But I can't say, well, every doctrine's true. Because if I believe something, then I believe something. And if I don't believe something, then I don't. But I was talking with him and I thought, well, I was listening, I was grieved, and I thought, oh, I, wish I, had, I wish I had more time with him to try to talk about that some. Its illustration made me think a little bit of sports fans and even uh, personal development junkies. People that look at other people that are performing like really, you know, big time. They'll even teach about how to perform. And they'll watch the sports athletics or they'll listen to the person speak, be a keynote speaker and write a book or whatever. And they just love to take it in and read about it and learn about it. But there's sometimes people that learn about productivity and they're never productive. And they just can't get enough of learning it, but they don't do anything about it. And there's people that get so much into sports and they, they know everything about sports, but they can't really even shoot a ball, you know. And that's all good with sports, but with, with our relationship with Christ, with church, with Christianity, I can't just be a spectator. I can't just be like, you know, I, I love that out there. I love what you're doing. Yep, yep. No, I got to get in there and do it. The ending of chapter 1 and much of the chapter 2 teaches the Philippian believers to practice Christ-like humility. But this portion that we read a few moments ago builds off that, keeping Christ's example at the center, but it exhorts the believers to add Christ-like obedience to Christ-like humility as God makes them a light in a perverse world. Add Christ-like obedience to Christ-like humility as God makes them a light in a perverse world world. The exaltation and return of Christ is a key motivation in this text. I want you to notice in these several things as we get into the text this morning. Look at me in verse 12, please. And we'll see the exaltation of Christ and the return of Christ as a common theme of why we're going to do the things that we're going to look at today about Christ's like obedience. This was a common theme of Paul's all the time as he wrote. He constantly talked about the return of Christ. But go with me to verse 12, please, and you'll notice the word wherefore. You've heard me say this before, right? But when you see a wherefore, you need to figure out what it's, what it's there for, okay? If you see a therefore, you see a wherefore. So look at, look at me here. And in verse 12, their call that we'll see in a few minutes to more obedience is joined to Christ's exaltation and return found in verses 9 through 11. In verses 9 through 11, notice with me it says, Wherefore God hath highly exalted him, Jesus, after he, he obeyed to the cross, and given him a name which is above every name. Verse 10 in Philippians 2, That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as my absence only, but now much more in my absence, or not in my presence, but more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We're going to look more at that, but I want you to notice that this, this verse here is building off the reality that Jesus Christ is, is lifted up and he will return. And in light of that motivation, he's saying to obey. More obedience is joined to Christ's exaltation, his return. Hey, he's coming back. Let's make sure we're obedient because he didn't just come at Bethlehem. He's coming back again. Then we find in verse 9, Christ's exaltation being lifted up is joined to his humble obedience found in verses 6 through 8. 
Notice with me in verse 9, it says, what's the first word there? Wherefore, God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name. He did that after, verse 8, and being found in fast as many, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He humbled himself, wherefore God exalted him. So you see the exaltation of Christ, the return of Christ. And then notice in verses 16 through 18 with me here. Verse 16 through 18, their call to faithfulness and joyful sacrifice is joined to their expectation of Christ's return in verses 9 through 11, the same verses we saw earlier. Notice with me in verse 16 through 18, Paul writes to the Philippian believers and he says, holding forth the word of life, that, so I want you to do this and we'll talk about what that is in a moment, but hold forth the word of life, that, for this purpose, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. The day of Christ is the return of Christ. So it's saying, so that I can rejoice in the day when Christ returns, do this thing. Again, the motivation is the return of Christ. And then he says, that I have not run in in vain, neither labored in vain. He's saying, when I stand before Christ, and I stand before him, I want to be able to rejoice in you being found faithful, in you being there with me. And then he goes on in verse 18, he says, for the same cause also do you joy and rejoice in me. So he says, for the same cause, you need to have the same motivation. Really what we're seeing as a motivation in this text that's leading us to Christ-like obedience is that me and you as our motivation, as a driving motivation, needs to be the return of Christ. That we will stand before Him. Our motivation can't be fear of man. Our motivation can't be even other people. Other people can motivate us. It helps when you have other people running next to you. Have you ever ran or walked before and someone else was running or walking or jogging next to you and you started speeding up? You ever driven a car before and you kind of started putzing and you kind of just driving along and they just know all these people are passing. You're like, whoa, that's not normal. You know, you start speeding up. Because when you have other people next to you, it's kind of, a, oh, wait, I'm going kind of slow here. But they can't be your main motivation because what if they go too fast? What if they go too slow? What if they go the wrong way? Christ needs to be our motivation. So I want to give you a summary of the text as we dive into it, okay? I want to give you a summary, kind of a paraphrase. So as you obeyed Christ in my presence, this is Paul writing, okay? As you obeyed Christ in my presence, Paul is saying. Now remember, 10 years ago, he was with them for some period of time. He's saying, as you obey Christ in my presence, now much more in my absence. You see how this is pretty fitting for today? But he says, now much more in my absence. More, not less. More in my absence. Let God do his work in and through you, making you a light within a perverse world until Christ returns. You know, we could, we, we could get so fixated on the problems of our world, the problems of our country, the problems of our community. And we said, you know, sometimes we've, I've been frustrated with it. I've had conversations with a number of you here as we talked about it and just say, why don't more people respond to the gospel? You know, the Bible doesn't command us to generate fruit. It just tells us to be a light in a perverse world. Knowing that the world is perverse and it is dark, we're just supposed to be the light. And he doesn't, you'll notice as we get into this, Further, he doesn't say be a light. He says you are a light. 
make sure you're shining. See, as a Christian, you can't say, I'm not a light. If you are a born-again believer, child of God, you are a light. And people see you, and you represent Christ. You can't say, I don't, re- I don't want to represent him right now. I'm going to a place right now, I'm going to do this thing, and I'm not representing Jesus. Problem is, you could try to take the badge off and the, the uniform and all that, but you and I, wherever we go, we are ambassadors on behalf of Christ. And you can't say, well, I'm going to take it off when I go over here. I'm going to put it back on. No, no, you are a light. Make sure you're shining. So Paul calls these believers to follow Christ's obedience in four areas that I find in this text. I'm going to give them to you here, and then we're going to get into each one. The first one is more obedience. We already saw that a little bit. He admonishes them. He calls them into more obedience, not less. Secondly, he admonishes them to be shining testimonies. He tells them, you are lights. Make sure you are shining, and he tells them how. Thirdly, he tells them to have continuing faith, to persevere, to be faithful, to continue. That's what he tells them. And then fourthly, he tells them to have joyful sacrifice. Joyful sacrifice. And that part gets really, really neat. As you see Paul describe what joyful sacrifice was to him, and what he calls them to have as well. So we're going to take a look at these and consider how you and I should respond personally to these four areas where Paul calls the Philippian believers who are children of God to follow Christ in obedience. How should we respond to the call of Christ-like obedience? Let's have a quick word of prayer, and then we're going to jump right into those. Dear Lord, I pray that you'd help us to understand these and help us to want to be them and practice them. I pray that you'd bless us as we seek to follow you. Help us to be faithful to the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The first is a working grace. You'll see in verse 12 and 13, I'm doing this a little bit differently today, but I wanted us to see a working grace in verse 12 and 13, and this is the whole thought that I'm, as I understand it, in verses 12 through 13. So let me read it for you and talk through it. But this work in grace he, he encourages them to is, he is saying, especially now in his, in Paul's absence, live out and accomplish God's work of salvation in you by grace. By grace. So let's consider this here. Look with me in verse 12 first. Wherefore, in light of the return of Jesus Christ, in light of all of that, my beloved... As ye have obeyed, as ye have past tensed, as you've already obeyed, not in my presence only. In other words, don't don't, don't just obey because of my presence, Paul says. But now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, unfortunately, there are some that I believe are greatly misunderstanding the scriptures that will use this as a proof text to try to say that you could lose your salvation, that you are working on almost your salvation. And that's not what this verse is saying. This is saying that if you are truly regenerate, if you are truly born again, if you have been justified, if you have been positionally sanctified by God and continually, progressively being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, if that is in you, that ought to be working out. The working out there is the Greek word, 
gazomai, means to do, to bring about, to produce, to accomplish. He's saying to do, to bring about, to accomplish the work of salvation that it's attached to verse 13 that God is doing in you. Work it out. Make sure that the salvation that you claim to have, that you profess to follow Christ, make sure that what is inside is coming out and you see a partnership with God in His work of sanctification in my life and yours. There's not a partnership in justification. There's not a partnership in atonement. There's not a a partnership in God rebirthing me and you and making us his own. There is no partnership there, but there is a partnership with God in our spiritual growth. You can't just sit back and be like, God's going to grow me. Yep. Paul calls him to an action, an action of work. Work what's in you out. Not work on, not try to produce your salvation in a sense to where Christ didn't pay it for you, but to work with God on the salvation he gave you. And notice it's a working grace. Notice the work in verse 12, work out, but then also in verse 13, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. If you and I have turned to God with repentance and faith, trusting Christ alone and what he did as our payment for salvation, freedom from sin, the power of sin, the penalty of sin, and offered us an eternal relationship with him that we can walk with him in truth. That is true. That you and I could expect that God is working on you and in you. He's working in your heart. He's working in your life. He is making you more like Christ, you can be disobedient. We still have the ability to rebel against God. We have a sin nature. God doesn't take this side of heaven, this side of Christ's return and the new heaven and new earth. He doesn't take all that away. There's no sinless perfection where we don't sin anymore. This side of of glory. But we do know that if you and I are born again, God is working on you and he's working on me. Have you you ever known he was doing that? Have you ever had God working on your heart and influencing you? I mean, I look back in my life and I see times where I would have been unfaithful to God if God wasn't faithful to me. I've seen times in my life where I would have been disobedient if the Holy Spirit wasn't nudging and reproving and convicting me as a child of God. I'm so thankful that God is faithful. But I'm also convicted to work with him in the transformative work he's doing. I can't help God pay for my sins. Christ paid it all. But I must partner with him in a changed life. Work with grace. God's grace is not only to pay for your sins, it's also to change you and make you like Jesus. Secondly, not only do we see a work in grace, but we see shining testimonies. Shining testimonies. In verse 14, we see him saying, do all things without disputing one with another. Sounds a lot like the first part of this chapter. Do all things without disputing one with another so that you are without need of rebuke as you shine as lights in a perverse world. 
Say, make sure you're not fighting with each other and disputing with one another as you shine, because you are lights. And this is a perverse world, and they need to see lights that don't need rebuke, correction. So let's go ahead and look here at verse 14. It says, notice the strong imperative that's given here. Do all things without murmuring and disputings. One of the greatest ways to confuse people about whether or not a church is, is really following Christ and to make people look and say, well, I don't know, I thought there are Christians over there. It's for those Christians to just constantly be fighting with each other. Hey, you know what? You and I are going to have differences. You know, with the new pastor, Pastor David, he's going to do some things different than me. And you know what? You all might decide to, to change the carpet one day, and one person will want this color, and one person will want that color. And you might even have some healthy, wonderful debate about gray areas of theology in the Bible. And you might go back and forth about some areas. Great. Just make sure you're not fighting. We're allowed to be different. We are not called to be cookie-cutter people. You can look different. You can do your hair different than me. You can dress different than me. You can like different food than me. You can have a different schedule than me. You and I can be different from each other, but let's make sure we are united around the gospel and the clear teachings of God's word. Now, those are things worth defending. But even when we defend them, we don't fight. If someone believes something differently, that's okay. That's on them. I'll preach and teach, and if they choose to reject it, that's, okay. that's on them. Do all things without disputing one with another. So in verse 14, he says, do all things without murmurings and disputings, which is grumblings. Don't, don't be grumbling and complaining, under the breath talking. And you know what? If you do have an issue, man, address that with people that are decision makers in the church. Talk to them. I say that all the time in every team that I have a part of when I spend time with people. Make sure that you're making, you're communicating upwards to decision makers, not laterally to non-decision makers. Now, maybe if you're trying to understand something, you might talk about it a little bit, but make sure you talk and say, you know what, I don't understand this. Okay, let's go together and let's go talk. But Paul goes on to say, verse 15, why they need to not murmur and dispute. And the why is that ye may be blameless and harmless, innocent. The sons of God, obviously, people see that you are sons of God. Without rebuke or blemish, no need for that rebuke and correction. To rebuke is to point out and forbid and say, nope, don't do that. And so without need of that, now we're all, we all need rebuke sometimes. But the admonition that's being given is saying, live a life where you are faithful to the gospel, faithful to Christ, to where you shouldn't have to have someone come and say, hey, stop, don't, you know you shouldn't do that as a believer, as a follower of Christ. And then he says, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. This seems to be a little bit of a parallel of Deuteronomy 32, where the children of Israel are described as crooked and twisted generation. And it seems that they were limited by their grumbling and disputing in the wilderness wandering. And Paul is saying to them, hey, don't be like these people out in the wilderness. 
Remember, when God saved them, they were saved out of Egypt. He saved them out of Egypt for the promised land, but they didn't get to the promised land because they grumbled and complained in the wilderness and they wouldn't follow. They wouldn't go where God wanted to do. They couldn't even unite about crossing into the, the promised land. The promised land was there for them, but they couldn't unite about going there. They grumbled. They complained. They had the analysis paralysis where they, they, they fought and they analyzed and, no, no, I don't think we should do it yet. All those people are kind of big and, and mean and I don't think we could do it. And while the person of faith like Moses and others that were with him and Joshua, and they were saying, I believe we can do it. And other people are just, no, I'll tell you reasons why we can't do it. Paul is saying, don't be like those people in the, in the wilderness that were just disputing and getting stuck in the desert. Get on out of there. Get out of the wilderness. So first we see Paul telling them to have a working grace. Secondly, a shining, be shining testimonies. And thirdly, to have continuing faith. To have continuing faith. We see in verse 16, if you'll look with me there in just a moment. I'll summarize it. We'll look at the text. He's saying, hold forth the message of Christ, this word of life, in faith and obedience until Christ returns, so that those who have ministered to you can rejoice in that day and not have wasted much of their service. Paul's being pretty pointed here. Paul is saying, hey, make sure that you stay faithful to Christ so that way Paul, I, can rejoice at the judgment seat. I can rejoice when Christ returns and not say that back there I went under persecution and I spent of myself and you didn't remain faithful. And that's what Paul was saying. So let's look at the text in verse 16. It's a continuing thought here and it says holding forth the word of life. That holding forth is the Greek word apeko. It means to hold fast or to hold out to offer. And so people can debate of which one it is, but it kind of, I believe it holds both meanings to hold forth. So it's to hold forth and hold fast and to hold out. It's to take the message of Christ, the gospel, and in context here, he's saying, hold on and be that testimony. Hold it forth. Let people see the testimony of Christ in you. Hold it, hold fast to it and hold it out. Continue. Don't, don't be a, a private Christian. Don't be a Christian that you're allowed to do that too, uh, Brother Terrence. That was good. Someone else do an amen there? I'm just joking with you. You got a preacher in the room. You know, you got to get an amen or two every once in a while. Come on, Diana, where are you at? You amen sometimes? All right. But the whole idea is that Paul is saying to them to hold fast and hold forth, to hold out this message of Christ and obedience until he returns. So verse 16, he says, holding forth the word of life, that, this is the reason, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. That I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. So Paul did his work, and he plowed the ground, and he shared the gospel. He obeyed the Macedonian call. He went where God wanted him to go. The chief shepherd called the under-shepherd to go where he needed to go. And then when God moved him away, he said, hey, make sure you're faithful. Because when the day of Christ comes, I want to be rejoicing on the day of Christ that you were found faithful. That's what Paul's saying. And then it continues on, and we see in verse 17 through 18, Paul admonishing them to a joyful sacrifice. 
He's telling them, he's calling them to a working grace and a shining testimony, a continuing faith that, that continues on. But then fourth, a joyful sacrifice. A joyful sacrifice. He's telling them to rejoice together in offering your lives to Christ for the faith of others. Consider this. This is powerful. Rejoice together in offering yourselves to Christ for the faith of others. Verse 17, look with me there, please. He says, yea, and if I be offered. Now, Paul talks about this in a number of different places. Timothy, he talks about he's ready to be offered. He's ready to die if he must. Chapter 1, he talked about this as well. He said, to me, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. He's saying, if, if I'm offered like an animal is offered or like a, a drink offering is offered along with an animal, this is, what, this is the context he's talking about. This parallels even some in Deuteronomy where it talks about these kind of offerings. And he's saying, if I am offered, if I'm offered like an offering brought to God and, and an animal slain and a drink offering poured on with it, if I'm just poured out is what he's saying. If my blood and my life is poured out on the sacrifice of your faith, what's his thought? Let's go ahead and keep looking. He says, Yea, and if I be offered, poured out upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. What's the sacrifice and service? It's their faith, the Philippian believers. He's saying if I'm poured out, the Philippian believers, their faith, you follow me? I know this is a little bit much. But your faith, he's saying their faith is poured out as a sacrifice that God loves seeing their sacrifice. And he's saying if I'm poured out on that sacrifice, with my life, I pour out my blood, I pour out my life on that sacrifice, he's saying. For Christ. Christ is the one that all of it is all about and it's being offered for. He goes on to say, I joy and rejoice with you all. If I pour out my blood, if I pour out my life, if I die physically, if I pour out and expend of myself for your faith, he says, he says, I joy in that and rejoice with you. We're together on the altar. A sacrifice to Christ, pleasing to him. If I spend of myself, he's not just saying, he's not preaching a prosperity gospel here. He's not saying, hey, if you and I get our pockets full of God's wealth that he has, because he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and, and he wants, if we have all these wonderful things and he, and he gives us all these things, I rejoice. No, he's saying, if I spend of myself for Christ. But he doesn't just talk about himself here. Notice with me here. Let's keep reading this verse. For the same cause. Also do ye, also do ye, and rejoice with me. Rejoice with me. Paul is saying, I have poured out my life for your faith. You do the same for other people's faith. You do the same for other people's faith. Remember in the very beginning we talked about we love being spectators. We love it when we have someone that we see them pouring themselves out and we say, oh, I love that. I love the way that person pours himself out. Paul is saying, you go pour yourself out. Make yourself a sacrifice on the altar for Christ. 
Don't just enjoy seeing someone else poor. You give your life to. And that's not, this is not talking to pastors here. It's talking to pastors, deacons, and saints. All three. It's talking to David, and I'm preaching to David right now. You gotta remember, he's he's been a part of this church. I've been preaching right at him, aiming right at him for about 10 months or so. It's talking to the deacons, Marvin and Malachi. It's talking to our saints, our members in our church, our those attending with us. He's talking to these believers and he's saying, just like I poured myself out for you, you can pour yourself out and find joy in it. We're not talking about a grievous pouring. Oh, I got to pour myself out. This church is so demanding. They got so many things they're trying to tell me to do. But rather a joy of I get to be a sacrifice for Christ. So in conclusion, the chief example and motivation for all of this is Christ. So let's look at several statements about Christ and I won't preach them. I'm just going to give them to you. Jesus is our example in this chapter and in all the Bible. For everything we learn, but especially this particularly, because he is the center of everything I just preached in this text. Let's look at it. The first is Christ exceedingly obeyed while in separation from his Father on the cross. Paul said, In my absence even more, be obedient. And in this text, we see Christ being obedient to the death of the cross And you know he was separated from the Father on that cross. He had exceeding obedience to the Father on the cross as he was being the substitutionary payment for our sins. There's no greater example of obedience than Christ who did not. God never had to write the salvation story. He chose to. Christ submitted to it. Secondly, we see that Christ maintained an absolutely blameless and sinless testimony. He maintained an absolutely blameless and sinless testimony. Just like Paul said, to have, be a shining light and to be blameless, Christ maintained and does maintain perfect, sinless testimony. Thirdly, Christ remains faithful yesterday, today, and forever. And Christ said to con- have continuing faith, continuing faith. There's no greater example than the one we follow, the same yesterday, today, forever. There is no wavering in him. There is no change in him. There is no retreat in him. There is no flaw in him. That's why he's the one we must follow. And then lastly, Christ found joy in pouring himself out as the complete offering for the penalty of our sin. Hebrews 12 tells us, that he found joy. He wasn't just a sacrifice. He was a joyful sacrifice. He poured out his blood. He poured out his life for us, and he loved doing it. Before it, 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 was, it was a challenge. He went into it, and he spent time with his father in prayer, but it was still a joy to do it. He poured himself out joyfully. Now, all of this, let's remember that it is God which worketh both in you to will and do. All this. If you're saved, if you're a child of God, God is working in you. And when I say these words from God's word, if you're a child of God and born of God, then your heart should be pumping inside saying, yep, that's me. 
I want to be faithful to him. I want to be faithful to John Cole. I want to be faithful to Martha Cole. I do want to be faithful to them to some degree. They're my brothers and sisters in Christ. But I want to be faithful to Christ. Don't just try to work hard at this. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Yield to God. Obey. Find joy in Christ-like obedience. As you obeyed Christ, I'm going to give this to you again. This is the summary of everything. As you obeyed Christ in my presence, Paul says, now much more in my absence, let God do his work in and through you, making you a light within a perverse world until Christ returns. You say, Pastor Cole, I don't know. Is the church worth it for me to be faithful here? We still got some empty seats. This has been empty seats as long as I've been here. But he didn't call us to fill every seat, though we want to see them filled. Called us to be light in a perverse world. And you know what's funny? The thing we want, you got to put in the work day to day to see it happen. You want to see a seat get filled? You need a Rob. You need an Aura. You need a David. You need a Tito. You need a Lolita here to welcome them when they do come. Growth doesn't happen like, bam, boom, it happens. It happens one person at a time that decides to stick. Like Rob and JJ recently started coming, about 10 months. But it, it trickles. People get reached. Lewis has been coming with us. Bruce has been coming with us. That's exciting. Virginia's here with us. Jerry's back. Man, revival's happening. <laughs> but you know what? It, it, happens, it happens as God's people are faithful. When people come, man, they ought to get handshakes from absolutely everybody here. Loving them because we're saying, I'm a sacrifice. I'm not just coming to get fed. I'm coming to pour out. So we'll make this real personal to our church. And you all know, this is my last time. I couldn't preach a short sermon. Okay? You know this. Know this. David will make up for all my long sermons. Okay? Right? Right? Never know. You never know. But let's make this real personal to the church. In my absence, in Martha's absence, now more, as in my presence, now more in my absence. I just want to give you a personal word. The text is not saying John Cole Lakes your Baptist. But I want to apply it to us. As in my presence, now in my absence, so much more. Don't become less committed to Christ. You say, well, I don't know. I came here, you know, for Pastor Cole and all that. And I feel like that sometimes. I feel like that now. I don't even know if I want to go to Rose Hill. You know, I just want to just stay right here. But when the chief shepherd moves us, we obey. Promise is we want to be found faithful to Christ in the church. And you know what? I hear people's stories and it encourages me that God brought people here. God brought you here. That encouraged me to be faithful to Christ, to this church. And of course, I understand everybody's got to make their decisions and no one's a bad person if someone decides I want to go to another church. We're not gonna, no one's going to ever be bad mouth. No one will ever be like, oh yeah, they laughed, they weren't committed. No, we're not going to do that. Faithful to Christ. Faithful to Christ. We don't live for Lakeshore Baptist Church, but this is our church family. And I'm just trying to admonish you to be faithful. And being faithful might be being part of a different church. I hope not. I hope it's right here, and I hope it's you being a light to this community that needs it. But that's okay. We're not, we don't manipulate. We don't try to say, oh, you got to do this. Faithful to Christ, not, not Lakeshore, not John. You be faithful to each other, brothers and sisters. But I do want to encourage you to be more obedient now, to be more united now, to be more faithful now, to be more sacrificial now.
I've got a statement for you. Find joy, to summarize this even short, more shortly, find joy in obedient, harmonious, faithful sacrifice to Christ and others. If you want to make it even more simple, that's the message. Everything we've seen so far in chapter 2 is telling us to find joy in obedient, harmonious, faithful service to Christ and to others. And I'm going to give it even smaller. Be shining lights right here. Be shining lights. Be shining lights right here. Christ-like obedience. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.